Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Tony Katz today on this Friday. Thank you for tuning into the program. Tony is off today. My name is Cam Edwards. I am the editor at BearingArms.com. And I am so glad to be behind the microphone. We've got a great three hours for you. Coming up here a little bit later on this hour, Adam Kraut's going to join us from the Firearms Policy Coalition, one of the Second Amendment groups around the country doing fantastic work defending your right to keep and bear arms. They're actually uh, the organization that brought this challenge to California's ban on so-called assault weapons. The one that a federal judge struck down one week ago. Well, yesterday afternoon, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, announced that the state is going to appeal that judge's decision. That's not surprising. We, we expected that. What kind of was surprising is the language that Governor Newsom used to attack the judge who issued that decision calling him a wholly owned subsidiary of the NRA, calling him a stone cold ideologue, uh, basically bashing this judge for his decision. There was no substantive criticism, by the way, of the opinion itself. Gavin Newsom didn't say, hey, look, you know, when the judge said this, well, he was wrong. No, it, it, was, it was simply just a matter of attacking the judge because the judge ruled in this 94 page exhaustive opinion, by the way, that the state of California's ban on the most commonly sold rifle in America today violates the constitutional rights of residents. So, again, we're going to talk with Adam Kraut from the Firearms Policy Coalition about that. Uh, also, uh, if we've got time, we're going to talk with Adam about a brand new lawsuit uh, just filed in Philadelphia, PA. This is a, a, another situation. It's not just happening in Pennsylvania. It's happening in a lot of places around the country. You go back to last, uh, last March, basically, when the first round of these COVID shutdowns were put in place, not only were a lot of quote-unquote non-essential businesses ordered to close, but a lot of county sheriff's offices, city halls, even courtrooms closed to the public for months at a time. And that means that a lot of places around the country are still dealing with this massive influx of concealed carry applications in some states that require permits to simply own a firearm. They are still trying to wade through the backlog of applicants. I mean, think about this. We saw record setting levels of gun sales last year, a record number of new gun owners last year. And yet at the same time in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia police closed their licensing division for months. So if you wanted to get a concealed carry license, there was no way for you to do so. In fact, if you called, they were setting up appointments more than a year away. So you would call, let's say last April, and they'd say, all right, well, you can come in in May of 2021. So they're being sued over this because they still have a backlog of about 29,000 concealed carry applications that they have not been able to get to. Meanwhile, in the state of Illinois, the firearm owner ID card requirements You've got to have a FOID card in order to legally possess a gun in your home. The Illinois State Police, they're supposed to process these applications, which I think are unconstitutional to begin with, but they're supposed to process these FOID applications within 30 days under state law. It is taking them an average of 162 days to process FOID applications. Keep in mind, you cannot legally possess a gun in your home without one of these FOID cards in the state of Illinois. So we've got a case here where Second Amendment rights are being delayed to the point that they're being denied. 
and uh, Adam Kraut and the folks at Farmers Policy Coalition trying to take some of these uh, governments to task. Now, coming up next hour, we're going to talk with Carol Roth as well. Uh, I love Carol. I've uh, followed her on Twitter for years. I've never actually had a chance to interview her on the program, which is great uh, that we've got the opportunity to do so today. We're going to be talking about uh, what's going on with BlackRock and these other uh, hedge funds buying up single family homes. Are they responsible for driving up the, uh, the, the, the prices or the prices in housing and kind of causing this uh, housing crunch. Uh, Carol Roth, former investment banker, author of the upcoming book, The War on Small Business, will join us uh, in hour two. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I don't have any plans to immediately sell my home, but my wife and I have talked about this. We bought a, a small farm in, in rural Virginia about a little more than eight, about eight and a half years ago. And we love it. I mean, we absolutely love where we live. It's just that the state of Virginia has changed and not for the better since we uh, uh, moved to rural Virginia. So we've talked about selling our place, maybe moving to West Virginia, maybe moving to Texas, maybe moving back to Oklahoma, which is uh, where we lived before we moved to Virginia. But we're going to wait a couple of years. Our, our kids are still in high school. My wife uh, really likes her oncologist. She's been dealing with cancer for five years. So we don't really want to upset the apple cart right now. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm actually kind of terrified about what the uh, housing market is going to look like a couple of years from now. So I have a personal interest in speaking with Carol Roth uh, coming up next hour. And uh, in hour three, we're going to engage in one of the uh, uh, great pastimes of gun owners and that is uh, debating what gun is best <laughs> producer ari is uh, looking for a firearm and we uh, had this conversation off air yesterday about uh, uh ar-15s in particular so we're going to wade into that debate coming up in hour three we also have a lot of other news to get to including uh the uh the coming war on woke schools. This is a piece at National Review. This is something that is certainly playing out in my home state of Virginia and I think is likely to uh, spread around the country as you are seeing this grassroots movement to push back on school boards introducing things like critical race theory into uh, uh, the uh, curriculum. Uh, and you're starting to see parents get really fed up in, in the northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. suburb of Loudoun County, home to about 88,000 public school students. Uh, members of the school board there are facing a recall over transgender issues, over uh, critical race theory, over this uh, amb allied ambassadorship program, which basically um, is, is sort of the the woke hall monitors. These are our students who are supposed to snitch on their fellow students if they witness microaggressions and things of that nature. And parents in Loudoun County are fed up. They've got a recall petition going. Uh, there were hundreds of them that turned out at a local school board meeting, which if you've ever been to a local school board meeting, you know that's pretty shocking. One of my first jobs in radio was actually um, covering local school board meetings in Oklahoma City. And every time I would go, no matter how contentious the discussions were on the agenda, It'd be me and the reporter for the local paper and about eight parents in a room that could hold several hundred. That's typically what a school board meeting looks like. Not in Loudoun County, because people are fed up with what is going on in our schools. And I think a big part of it, actually, is the fact that because our kids, most of them anyway, have been home for the past year, parents are much more aware now and they are much more engaged uh, in terms of what their kids are learning. And I think, you know, the teachers unions may have wanted to keep uh, teachers 
uh, and, and students out of these schools for as long as possible. I got to tell you, from a political perspective, well, actually, from from both a political perspective and an educational perspective, I think that's an awful idea. I think we need to get our kids back in schools. But I think it's going to backfire on the teachers unions because our kids being taught at home uh, online has allowed us a window into their education that we don't normally get. And it has enraged and aggravated and infuriated and terrified a lot of parents. And now they are starting to stand up. So we've got, uh, again, a lot of stuff to get through over the next three hours. I'm glad that you're going to be with me. Uh, when we come back after a quick time out, Adam Kraut going to join us from the Firearms Policy Coalition. We'll talk about uh, the California governor's temper tantrum over this decision striking down the state's ban on so-called assault weapons. Stick around. We are just getting started here on this Friday edition of Tony Katz Today. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. You, uh, however, do not have Tony today. I am Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com, where I focus on Second Amendment news and information. Encourage you to check out the website. Also, Bearing Arms, Cam and Company, the uh, podcast that we do Monday through Thursday, uh, taking a look at some of the big Second Amendment news. We have certainly spent some time talking about the decision by U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez one week ago declaring that California's ban on so-called assault weapons violates the constitutional rights of its residents. Now, Judge Benitez did stay that decision, so you can't run out and buy an AR-15 uh, in California today, unfortunately. Oh, that, that were the case. But uh, yesterday, California Governor Gavin Newsom made it official. The state is going to appeal the judge's decision, which is expected. What was kind of surprising, though, is the vitriol that Governor Newsom directed at the judge uh, in this opinion, uh, Judge Benitez himself. And joins us to talk about it from the Firearms Policy Coalition, the uh, organization that filed uh, the Miller versus Bonta case to begin with. Uh, Adam Crowd is with us. Adam, how are you, sir? Cam, how are you doing? I am excellent, man. I appreciate you coming on the show today. And, you know, this look, we've seen these attacks on Judge Benitez over the last week. Uh, and I, I think the first one that I saw was from the Daily Beast, uh, you know, arguing that uh, Judge Benitez uh, had, had uh, not received a favorable report from the American Bar Association back in the 80s when he was appointed to the federal bench. Uh, Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post declaring that Judge Benitez is an example of why uh, judges should be elected and should be able to be removed from office every so often but then you've got governor newsom coming out yesterday and declaring that the judge is a quote wholly owned subsidiary of the nra uh calling him a stone cold ideologue and and basically trashing the judge because of his decision and not I, I noticed that the governor didn't really spend a lot of time getting into the arguments and the analysis that the judge used to reach his conclusion. It was just trashing the judge because he didn't rule the way Gavin Newsom wanted him to. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess real quick, going back to your, your point on the, the ABA uh, claim that's been circulating, uh, if you go and you look at the congressional record for the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, you'd see that uh, Judge Benitez was appointed, uh, recommended to the president by a unanimous commission, which was comprised of California Senators Boxer and Feinstein, who <laughs> are uh, certainly no friends to gun rights, uh, along with three other individuals, and he was unanimous unanimously recommended to President Bush for the uh, for the seat. Um, so, you know, there, there's that small hiccup there, uh, this whole idea that he was uh, bought and paid for or appointed by the gun lobby is just uh, ludicrous. Um, I, I think, you know, to your point, Newsom yesterday, certainly uh, he, he predicated his remarks with, you know, as the son of a judge. Uh, that right. kind of rings true to me in the same sense that somebody would say, you know, well, I'm a hunter and I believe in the Second Amendment, but uh, it's just there's no credibility there. And, you know, the ad hominem attacks uh, against Judge Benitez uh, are just a sign of weakness and an inability to attack the logic that was in the opinion itself. So to your point, um, you know, it, it just it shows to me that he couldn't go through and articulate a basis why the opinion was wrong and rather than try to do something that's logical it's just easier to attack the individual themselves absolutely in fact he ironically he even said during this press conference read these decisions don't just read the headlines well i have read all 94 pages of judge benitez decision and i know you have as well adam and you know one of the things that i was really struck by is that judge benitez in this decision he said look it's, it's pretty easy actually to to come to the conclusion that this law violates the second amendment because under the heller test the test uh, the test designed by the supreme court if a gun is in common use uh for lawful purposes then it's protected and that's clearly the case when we're talking about semi-automatic rifles um but but he didn't stop there he's he could have but he instead decided you know what we're going to go one step further and we're going to go through every one of the state's arguments as to why this ban should remain in place and he explained why those theories and why those arguments were wrong why they fell short of uh, of protecting the second amendment rights of residents whether it is the weapon of war argument or the argument from the state of california that well we can ban these guns because uh, gun owners can or people who want to own a gun they can get another kind of gun and judge benitez went through and explained why every one of those arguments was wrong yeah, he, he certainly did. And, um, you know, the, the opinion itself, I mean, when we look at it, you, you got to remember this this case, unlike all the others that have come before, this went to a bench trial where there was thousands of pages of exhibits submitted. Um, the record in this case was much larger than any before, and that was intentional. It was to provide the court with the necessary information and background so that it could examine the facts and apply the law. And let's not forget, the state of California had that same exact opportunity that the plaintiffs did and, uh, you know, to present evidence to the court, and they, they did that. Uh, and the court, in examining that evidence, determined that they could not meet their burden. And I just want to be clear here. It's the state's burden to prove the constitutionality of their law, not the plaintiff's. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes a lot of people forget that. And, you know, the judge did an excellent job. Uh, you know, it is a long, lengthy opinion. However, one of the things that I will absolutely commend the judge on is he wrote it in such a way that anybody... Uh, who doesn't have legal training, isn't a lawyer, isn't a paralegal, doesn't work in a law firm, then pick it up, read it, 
and understand how he arrived at that conclusion. So it was an opinion written for everybody to consume, not just those of the legal world. Um, and when we look at it, you know, he, he did exactly that. He looked and he said, well, under the Heller test, the test that should apply, um, that one simply asks whether a law bans a firearm that's commonly owned by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes. And the evidence clearly presented that the answer to that question is yes. And therefore, there shouldn't be any other analysis. But because the way the Ninth Circuit is, we had to go down into these different layers of scrutiny. And we would argue that strict scrutiny would apply, but the courts have seemingly chosen intermediate scrutiny. So rather than doing an analysis on the higher burden on the government, just did it under the, the one that would be a lesser burden to the government to prove. And even under that test, they still were unable to prove that the government interest outweighed uh, you know, everybody's constitutional right to bear these kinds of arms. Um, and uh, along the way, you know, I, I would note in the opinion, he, he set up certain checkpoints kind of to just show this analysis. And again, I think this goes to just kind of the plain language of it all. Uh, you know, that mm-hmm. again, the burden of proof is on the state. Uh, that uh, what you raised, this alternative argument of, uh, you know, that there's other guns available. And, and I, Heller rejected that test outright. Uh, you know, Heller banned handguns and said, well, that there's other guns available for people to choose. And the court said, no, that's not an answer. Um, and, and even if it were, that would allow for incremental bans since alternatives would exist in theory. So you could whittle it down to a very narrow subset. So there's no way that can stand. Uh, mm-hmm. He looked at the legislative history. He looked at news reports and police reports. And the one thing I would note here is that the government had the opportunity. The California DOJ has access to this information as to police reports or could obtain it and didn't do so. Um, you know, the evidence presented showed that AR-15s were used for home defense. Uh, there's discussion in the opinion as to why those prohibited features under California law are particularly useful for home defense. Um, the one thing that I would just kind of tout here for a moment is, uh, you know, we had set forth a video comparison of a featureless AR-15 that was California compliant and an AR-15 that would be lawful in, you know, 44 other states. Uh, and that gun was the same exact firearm, just configured two different ways. And mm-hmm. in looking at that video, the court found that the prohibited features didn't change, you know, uh, from one one way to another, from this benign weapon into, as he put it, an incredibly effective killing machine. Um, and, you know, the opinion also went forth to explain what some of the issues with the expert um, testimony from the uh, state you know, issues in that. In particular, there was one expert witness who uh, presented uh, data in a study, and it was incredibly flawed because she didn't disclose her data set. Nobody could replicate her study because they had nobody had access to the material. And yeah. she had been used uh, as an expert in other proceedings, uh, particularly in the Third Circuit. Hey, Adam, uh, let, me, let me stop and you right there. The Third let, Circuit said that, you know, we, we can't Adam, I, I've got to stop you right there for a second. I'm sorry, but yeah. we've got a hard break coming up at the end of the hour. Can I get you to stick around for a couple of minutes? Sure. Okay, great. We're going to talk more with Adam Kraut from the Firearms Policy Coalition. We're talking about this uh, California assault weapons ban. But I want to get into another lawsuit. This one looking at concealed carry delays in the uh, city of Philadelphia. Stick around. More of Tony Cast today is coming up right after this.
Welcome back to Tony Katz today. Tony is off on this Friday. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BarryAndArms.com. Glad to be with you this afternoon. Carol Roth is going to join us next hour. But uh, this hour, we're talking uh, Second Amendment issues. We've been uh, speaking with Adam Crowder, the Farmers Policy Coalition. He uh, joins us once again. Adam, thanks for sticking around. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I do want to talk about this new lawsuit uh, filed against the city of Philadelphia. But but one more question about uh, the uh, so-called assault weapons ban that was struck down in California. Uh, again, this was a week ago, and neither the anti-gun media nor anti-gun politicians are willing to let this go. They are clearly freaked out by uh, Judge Benitez's decision. Uh, this is not the first time that Judge Benitez has issued a, a ruling in favor of the Second Amendment, but I, I don't even recall this type of reaction when he struck down uh, California's ban on so-called high-capacity magazines, for example. Why are uh, gun control advocates so disturbed and, and so terrified by this particular decision? I think it probably stems from, if you look at gun control generally, and as Gavin Newsom bragged yesterday, it starts in California and it spreads outward from there. And I think if, if you know, uh, their law is struck down, not only does it uh, give people back their constitutional rights in California, it sets it up for uh, across the country for there to be a circuit split on this issue, which, you know, uh, that's what the Supreme Court likes. Um, they, they do enjoy circuit splits. Um, so, I mean, I think they're, they're worried that, you know, they, they lost at trial and uh, we're looking to bring the fight to them on appeal and beat them again. And I think that when they lose, they're going to have very big problems across the country as far as implementing their agenda. Um, I, I would just like to quickly circle back to one thing. Uh, they mm-hmm. did file their appeal yesterday, uh, and late, yes, uh, last night, uh, at least as far as Eastern time is concerned, uh, they did file an emergency motion for a stay. So they're already, they've got the ball rolling on that. We're already diligently working on uh, responding and taking care of that. Uh, so this is, this is moving forward, and it's moving at a uh, fairly rapid pace, and we look forward to litigating this issue uh, on appeal and, you know, defending our win. Excellent. And folks can uh, follow what Firearms Policy Coalition is doing, by the way. Just go to firearmspolicy.org uh, and you'll find out they're doing quite a bit, not only in California, but really all around the country. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I got to talk, Adam, about one of these other issues that we're seeing here, and, and it's in more than one jurisdiction. Um, we've got a lot of places around the country where we're seeing these massive backlogs of folks who have applied for their concealed carry license or in some states where a permit is required to simply own a gun. Uh, you've got a backlog for those permits as well. What, what's going on here, and uh, what is Firearms Policy Coalition doing to, to, to try to push back? Sure. So, I mean, as, as you're aware and as you pointed out, this is happening all across the country. Uh, we are examining those to see what legal challenges might present themselves. Uh, we had just recently obtained a judgment against the city of Philadelphia in relation to their gun permit unit and the fact that uh, they shut down not once but twice during COVID. The first time they shut down for several months uh, and the second time it was for a couple of weeks. And if you look at Pennsylvania law and the nuances of it, essentially, uh, we've been under a state of emergency for the past three years due to the opioid crisis and then COVID-19, thanks to the governor. And because of that, the way our law is structured, uh, an individual cannot carry a firearm either openly or concealed during the state of emergency without a license to carry. 
Uh, and the only way to get a license to carry in the city of Philadelphia is through the gun permit unit. So their total shutdown prevented Philadelphians from being able to even apply for the license, let alone have it be processed and received. So we sued them in federal court. Uh, we obtained a judgment against them uh, that forced them to reopen their gun permit unit to modernize their systems uh, rather than in-person only appointments, which is what they were doing. They uh, adopted Permidium, which is an online thing that's uh, processing the applications much more quickly as far as approvals uh, and, and people actually being able to apply. They don't have to go down there in person. So uh, we've, we've looked at other jurisdictions where this has been an issue. And uh, depending upon how their laws work, uh, there may or may not be a challenge. The Philadelphia, for example, was ripe for a challenge just because it totally prevented an individual from being able to bear arms. There are other jurisdictions that have these delays where you might not be able to carry concealed, but you could carry openly. And while you may prefer concealed and want to carry concealed, there still is an avenue for you to bear arms outside the home. And those become a lot more nuanced and potentially more difficult to challenge those types of delays. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would also just like to, you know, say you had mentioned the website before. If you go to ftclaw.org, uh, you can see all of the litigation that we're involved in, all of the filings. In fact, you know, we got that awesome decision uh, last Friday. This week, we followed it up by filing three new cases. We filed a Michigan 18 to 20 carry challenge. Uh, it's part of our strategic litigation across the United States to restore the right for 18 to 20 year olds to bear arms. We have cases in Pennsylvania, Illinois, Georgia, Tennessee, and at least one more coming. Uh, we filed a challenge to the Massachusetts roster, which was a challenge to their laws and regulations that restrict access to certain types of handguns that are commonly available for lawful purposes all across the country. And then uh, on Monday, Nevada passed their ban on what I call non-firearm objects. You may refer to them as 80% receivers uh, and frames. And we filed a lawsuit yesterday challenging that bill uh, and that not only uh, that bill not only banned the possession of uh, non-firearm objects, but also if you had previously self-manufactured a firearm, uh, mm-hmm. it would force you to dispossess yourself of it within uh, a certain time period. So uh, we're we're very busy. Uh, we're constantly looking at uh, you know different laws and things that jurisdictions are doing to to challenge them and you know uh, fight to uh, restore the Second Amendment. Well, and you guys are doing fantastic work. Um, I'm really glad you could be with us on the program. I, I got one, one last question before I let you go here, uh, Adam. Sure. Does it strike you as odd uh, as well? Because this is something that I've just I've noticed over the past year or so that, uh, you know, look, I, I believe that the Second Amendment is a nonpartisan and it should be a nonpartisan issue. But it's a political reality right now that, um, you know, most support for the Second Amendment is found on the right. Most opposition is found on the left. Does it strike you as odd, though, that you've got people like Gavin Newsom or Governor Andrew Cuomo who are on the one hand proclaiming themselves to be criminal justice reformers and we got to do something to end mass incarceration. And then they want to turn around and they want to create new crimes out of thin air, actually out of our right to keep and bear arms. They want to criminalize the possession of, you know, certain magazines or firearms, putting people in prison for nonviolent possessory offenses. Well, at the same time, they're calling themselves criminal justice champions. It's 
a little ironic. <laughs> I, I guess that's the best way to, to describe it is it, it is ironic. You know, on the one hand, you do have them saying that they're champions of criminal justice reform, and then they go and do things like let people who have a propensity for violence out of jail uh, early and, and things of that nature. And on the other hand, uh, they do exactly what you said. They want to criminalize conduct by people who are uh, law-abiding uh, for simply possessing something. And I, I think I, I would surmise this with a, a quote I saw on Twitter, and I, I beg your pardon on this, that it actually came from there. But uh, somebody pointed out earlier that uh, this week after this decision came down in um, Miller, that, you know, they had a hard time believing that there were so many people that were a fan of criminalizing pistol grips on firearms. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's all you're doing. It's, yep. it's ridiculous. It's sad. It's, it's ironic. Um, but unfortunately, that's what we're up against. And we will continue to you know push back and, and work to protect everybody's rights. Well, keep up the fight, Adam. Again, thank you so much for coming on the program, sir. It's great talking to you as always and look forward to doing this again very soon. Sounds good. Thank you for having me, Kim. You bet. Adam Kraut joining us from the Firearms Policy Coalition. Again, you can find them at firearmspolicy.org, one of the uh, many Second Amendment groups around the nation that is fighting on a daily basis to strengthen and secure your right to keep and bear arms. We're going to step away from uh, Tony Cassidy for just a moment or two. But when we return, I've actually got a, a, a perfect example of what's going on. Um, and this one, uh, this story comes out of a Calumet City, Illinois. A, a woman applied in Illinois for her firearms owner ID card, uh, and that was the that was the beginning of her struggles with the state of Illinois in terms of exercising her Second Amendment rights. Stick around; we've got more Tony Cast today coming up next. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. Uh, my name is Cam Edwards. I am the editor at BearingArms.com, host of Bearing Arms Cam and Company, a uh, daily podcast focusing on Second Amendment news and issues. And we've been talking about some of those Second Amendment news and issues this hour, but uh, we're going to reset the clock coming up in just a few minutes. Before we run out of time, though, I, I, I want to point out again what's going on, not only with these uh, attempted gun bans around the country, but how some of these quote-unquote common sense gun safety laws can actually stand in the way of people being able to exercise their right to keep and bear arms. This is happening right now in the state of Illinois, where the firearm owner ID card, you have to have this, it's called a FOID card, you have to have it in order to legally possess a gun, even in your home. We're not talking about a concealed carry license. This is a permit that is issued by the state of Illinois that you have to have in hand when you go to a gun store and you purchase a firearm for the very first time. And it is taking the state of Illinois almost six months to process on average, by the way, an average of almost six months to process these applications. That means that there is, in essence, a six month waiting period in the state of Illinois for you to exercise your Second Amendment rights. If you are not a gun owner right now and you would like to become one, you can't. You can't do so easily. You can't drop off an application or fill out an application and send it into the mail today and expect that you're going to get it uh, returned on Monday. It could easily be 2022 before you hear back from the state of Illinois. That's what happened to Coffee Brown. She lives in Calumet City, Illinois. And last July, 
She submitted her application for her FOID card. She has yet to receive it. Well, she, she received a card in the mail, but when she got it, it had somebody else's picture and somebody else's signature on it with her name and her personal information. So Coffee can't take this card to a gun shop and say, here's my FOID card, I'm good to go, because it, it's not her picture. The state of Illinois took almost a year to deliver her FOID card, and they screwed it up in the meantime. Coffee Brown says, quote, I don't understand why we have to go through all of this to be able to carry a gun. I don't understand it. It's not even that she had to go through all this to carry a gun. She has to go through all this to own a firearm. Coffee Brown wants to get her concealed carry license. She's already gone through her concealed carry course in the state of Illinois, but she can't apply for her concealed carry license until she has her FOID card. So tell me how her rights are not being denied to her at the moment. Again, it was last summer when Coffee Brown decided that she wanted to become a gun owner. She's still not able to legally do so in the state of Illinois. Meanwhile, you look at what's happening in Chicago. Homicides are up. Carjackings are up. Home invasions are on the rise. Criminals don't care whether or not they have a FOID card. Criminals don't care whether or not they have a, a license to carry in the state of Illinois. It's, it's people who want to stay on the right side of the law, like Coffee Brown, who are being impacted by these gun permitting and these gun licensing laws and the state's inability or unwillingness to abide by its own laws in processing these applications in a timely manner. That's right. Under Illinois state law, the state police are required to process a FOID card application within 30 days. Right now, it's taking, on average, 162 days for the state of Illinois to process a FOID card application. The delays are just as long for those who are applying for a concealed carry license. And Coffee Brown says she's fed up. She says, get it together. It shouldn't take this long to apply for a FOID card. Hire people. Do what you need to do. You should not have a citizen waiting for a year. So what does the Illinois State Police have to say about this? Because these problems actually aren't new. They've grown worse over the past year and a half, but they've had delays for a couple of years now, and they're also facing multiple legal challenges over the constitutionality of the FOID card requirements themselves. But the Illinois State Police have said, look, we need more money. We need to hire more staff uh, to do these checks. We need to upgrade our software systems. Here's the problem with that excuse. The state of Illinois, the Democrats in control of the state legislature in Illinois, actually raided the fund that is used to pay for the FOID card system. They took about $27 million from that fund over a period of several years. And now the Illinois State Police say, well, we, 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 need, we need more money. And Democrats in Illinois say, all right, well, what we need to do is we need to start charging more for the FOID card itself, increasing the fee that the state imposes on people trying to exercise a constitutional right, making gun owners pay for the raid of the FOID card funds conducted by Democrats. I mean, this is literally adding insult to injury. The injury is that you've got folks who are not able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. The insult is that these same individuals are being told, well, you need to pay more because we took your money away and we're not going to give it back. 
As I said, there are multiple legal challenges going on in the state of Illinois. There are those legal challenges going on in, uh, in Philadelphia. There are additional legal challenges taking place in North Carolina where we are seeing these same types of permitting delays. And it is my fervent hope and belief that eventually one of these cases, and hopefully sooner rather than later, gets to the Supreme Court and the court comes down on the side of gun owners. Because, again, if you're Coffee Brown and all you want to do is to be able to protect yourself in your home. Well, actually, Coffee wants a concealed carry license. So she doesn't want to just protect herself in her home. She would like to be able to protect herself in her home, in her vehicle, on the streets, in the neighborhood where she lives. And it's not like Calumet City, Illinois, is a particularly bucolic place. I mean, they have their share of crime problems. But if, if Coffee Brown were to decide, you know what, the criminals are carrying without a license, I'm going to do so too. Coffee Brown could be looking at years in prison for exercising her right of armed self-defense. And yet the state of Illinois will not do its duty to ensure that a law-abiding individual like Coffee Brown can exercise her Second Amendment rights. And I got to tell you, unfortunately, a federal judge earlier this week denied an injunction in one of these lawsuits. The Illinois State Rifle Association, the Second Amendment Foundation, uh, requesting this injunction from the judge, asking him to order the state to start processing these applications or to end this requirement entirely. And the judge said no. He said, yeah, people's constitutional rights are being affected but not to the point that uh, he feels like he needed to step in. So the fight continues, and it's going to continue, because the anti-gun activists are not going away. We can't go away either. Although we do have to step away for a quick break. But we will be back with Hour 2 of Tony Katz today. Carol Roth going to join us. Stick around. We have much more coming up right after this quick timeout. From the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It's Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards in for Mr. Katz on this Friday. Glad that you've joined us here. The number to call is 833-GOT-TONY. We're going to be talking with Carol Roth a little bit later on in the hour, former investment banker. She has a a brand new book coming out uh, all about uh, the economy and uh, uh, let me give you a little bit uh, it's called the war on small business and we're going to be talking about this with Carol you may have seen the story uh, earlier this week BlackRock and other big uh, uh, financial you know uh, uh, slush, or not slush funds but uh, uh, these big financial hedge funds going around and buying up thousands of single family homes uh, all across the country, and there is uh, Wall Street Journal. You know, has said that uh, there, there's reason to believe that uh, this practice is increasing the uh, the value of homes, maybe creating a bit of a housing bubble. Uh, ben Shapiro weighed in yesterday, saying, "No, no, that's not the case." And even Vox. It's rare to see Vox and Ben Shapiro on the same side of an argument. But uh, even Vox today has a piece. Wall Street isn't to blame for the chaotic housing market. Uh, Jerusalem Dimsis writing that the boogeyman isn't who you want it to be. 
It's also kind of odd to see Vox standing up for uh, for Wall Street. Uh, he says a, uh, some people are furious over reports that institutional investors are increasing the demand for homes and pushing prices upward. The Wall Street Journal wrote earlier this year that, quote, yield chasing investors are snapping up single family houses and competing with ordinary Americans. Marketplace reported the same, noting that one buyer had been outbid six times by all cash offers and uh, reporting that consumers are, quote, increasingly competing against institutional investors. Uh, real deal politics goes a further claiming, quote, one of the main reasons for these skyrocketing prices are actually a huge buying spree from institutional investors. Now, Vox says, look, investors go where the yield is. They're profit maximizers and face strong pressure to return large gains to shareholders. If you want to stop them, build more homes. Ensure that they cannot have a large market share and engage in predatory behavior and reduce the incentive for yield chasers to further commodify the market, which sounds fine, except when you start to consider the restrictions that Democrats have put in place on the building of new single family homes in many areas. California, I think, is a perfect example of this. You know, there is a huge housing crisis in California. When I was, uh, look, I was in California last time, probably three or four years ago. I was in the Bay Area. I was giving a speech and uh, I was driving back to the airport. The guy who was giving me a ride was uh, he had been hired to work private security at the event because apparently conservatives speaking in the Bay Area need to have private security. Um, And as we're going back to the uh, the airport, he's telling me his full time job uh, was running security for a, a big tech company. I won't say the name of it, but it may rhyme with Schmeichbook. Um, and, and he worked security for them. He could not, uh, he and his wife could not afford, and she worked full-time as well. They could not afford to buy a house. I mean, that was a pipe dream. Their, their, their realistic dream was to be able to afford an apartment that would uh, give them less than an hour's commute to work each day. And we're talking about this. He said, you know, my dad was an airport cop when I was growing up. And we had that that California middle class lifestyle. We, we had the single family home. We had a backyard to play in. I could, you know, ride my bikes with my friends. He said, I can't give my kids that same life. And this, I think, is we're starting to see this same type of scenario uh, play out all around the country. Even where I live, I live outside of a small town in rural Virginia, a town called Farmville, Virginia. It's a real place. I promise you it's not just a, a, a Facebook game. And we're seeing this here in Farmville. Houses will go on the market. They will be on the market for two or three days. And then they're selling at above the asking price. Now, I don't know how many of these homes are being sold to these uh, a big uh uh, institutional investors as opposed to actual Americans who want to move into that home. But given the fact that Farmville is a college town, there's a, a pretty strong rental market. You can always rent out these homes to college students. In fact, you could buy a four bedroom house and turn it into a, uh, you know, a, a multi-residential unit fairly easily. I think that you are seeing investors, even in small towns in rural Virginia, uh, end up picking up these houses not to live in, but to invest in. And there are disincentives in place at both the state and federal level in many circumstances that um, make it more difficult, or in some cases block outright, attempts to build more single-family homes. The left has said we don't need more single-family homes. That we, we, need to, we need to get rid of the suburbs. 
right? We, we need to have everybody in these compact areas. You can bike to work or you can walk to work. It's, it's, it's better for our uh, green economy and our green future. If we're going to save the planet. You can't have big, sprawling suburbs everywhere. So I think that there are some real issues going on. But is it BlackRock to blame? Is it Wall Street to blame? Is it big business? Is it big government? Is it maybe a little bit of both? We'll talk uh, again with Carol Roth about that coming up in just a minute or two. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about what's going on at the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott saying if the federal government won't do it, the state of Texas will build a border wall, a billion dollars appropriated in the Texas state budget to build a border wall. We're going to see more states take a a do-it-yourself approach to dealing with illegal immigration. And uh, Kamala Harris, speaking of illegal immigration and the border, Uh, Putting her foot in her mouth once again. It's a simple question. When are you going to go to the border? She can't answer it for some reason. Uh, The last time she was asked this question was a Univision anchor. And Kamala Harris actually did the finger wag. Don't, Don't interrupt me. I'm talking. Claiming that she had been to the border. She's going to the border. The anchor again, when? Just a pretty simple question. When are you going to go? And Kamala Harris can't or won't answer that question. What a remarkable self-own, by the way, on the part of the Biden administration, putting Kamala Harris in charge of the uh, supposed non-crisis at the border. And then allowing her to, you know, not visit. I mean, how easy would this have been? Joe Biden says, "We're, we're, we're putting Kamala in charge. And the next day she goes down, she does the photo op, you know, she she maybe uh, visits uh, the Rio Grande Valley, flies over to uh, Arizona for a a couple of hours, flies to California for a couple of hours, goes back to Washington, D.C. And then she could have said, I've been to the border. And you know what? We we, the the, the problems at the border uh, start in places like Guatemala in Honduras and El Salvador. So it's, it, I've been to the border, but I'm telling you, we, we've got to do more. We can't just focus on the uh, line of demarcation between the United States and Mexico. She could have said that, but she didn't because she never made that trip for some inexplicable reason. I, I guess they are more concerned about the, uh, the optics of Kamala Harris going to the border and the uh, media following uh, than they are concerned about the optics of Kamala Harris not being able to answer a simple question about when she might actually make it down there to the border that she is supposedly uh, in charge of. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, however, Carol Roth joins us. Stick around. We've got more Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards in for the uh, irrepressible Mr. Katz. And I appreciate uh, Tony lending me the microphone for a few hours. 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. And uh, right now we have on the program Carol Roth, former investment banker, uh, author of the upcoming book, The War on Small Business. You can find her on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. Carol, how are you? Happy Friday, Cam. A pleasure to be with you. You know, it is so good to finally talk with you in person. You and I 
I've been talking on Twitter for years now, but I think this is the first time that we've ever actually been able to have a real conversation. So appreciate the time. Isn't that funny how social media is? You've got all these friends from all over the world, and then you realize, like, oh, I don't know that we've actually ever met before. <laughs> right? That's one of the great things about being able to uh, sit in on talk radio is I, I have an excuse now to uh, to invite all of my online friends to come on the show. And honestly, you were one of the first people that I thought of when I uh, saw this uh, story. You know, I guess it goes back a couple of days now. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, talking about BlackRock and the institutional investors who are going in and buying up single family homes uh, all around the country. I know that Ben Shapiro has said, oh, no, 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 that's not the problem. Vox even has a piece today uh, talking about how Wall Street isn't to blame for uh, the chaotic housing market. So I want to get your take on this, Carol, because I'm even seeing this in small town Virginia where homes are going on the market and they're sold in like one or two days. Uh, and in many cases, you know, well above the asking price. What, what do you think is to blame for what we're seeing here? And, and is there something to this idea that these institutional investors are going in, snatching up all of these single family homes and then turning them around and, and you know, uh, putting them out as, as rentals, basically? All right. So two pieces to it. First is why are the homes so expensive? If you think about the last financial crisis, uh, we had a bunch of homes that went into foreclosure. So there was a lot of supply of homes that outpaced demand. And so if you're a home builder, you're not going to go and, and build up these new homes. Um, that started to get drawn down at the same time that we had this government manufactured crisis around COVID. And a lot of people decided that you know, they they either wanted to stay put in their home or that they wanted to go out and find a new home. So there was additional demand, but not enough supply coming online. At the same time, you had uh, all different kinds of supply chains disrupted, something like lumber, as we've seen, that's gone mm -hmm. through the roof, that's just making constructing new housing so expensive. So you have that one piece. The Black Rock piece, the private equity piece, is a huge problem as well in terms terms of um, increasing the demand. And I'm going to blame the Federal Reserve on that. What they have done is they have injected so much cash into the system and they have driven down interest rates. And this is something that not only benefits the big companies and these big uh, Wall Street firms more than it does the average person, but it also disrupts risk in the market. So if you're an investment firm and you're usually trying to go out and earn a return on your investor's capital, there's usually a number of different places to go. At this point, there's very few places to go without taking on excessive risk. So that's what's caused these firms to turn to the, the single-family housing market and and so now you've got these firms competing with your, your everyday person on Main Street for a home, and it's insane. And all of this has, has come as the fact that central planners, A, think that they know better how to run an economy than a free market, which they don't, and intentionally they're trying to consolidate this power. They, they want to deal with a few cronies instead of you know, every uh, individual who's just too difficult to control. You know, and that which takes us to your upcoming book, The War on Small Business. Uh, and, and you know, look, I mean, I, I grew up in the uh, the 80s and early 90s. So, you know, I was one of those conservatives who said, all right, well, big government's the problem. Um, but as I've gotten older, Carol, I, I, my philosophy has changed a little bit. And, and now to me, 
big, big, it's big that's the problem. Big is the problem of the little guy, right? Big is the problem. If you believe in individual liberty and individual freedom, um, then that central plan and that collectivism, whether it uh, comes from big government or big business, can be just as dangerous to our individual liberties. Absolutely. I mean, what has happened, and you mentioned the right time frame, it's really been over the past couple of decades, is that we decided to export capitalism to the benefit of places like China and, and India, and we imported the concept of central planning, which is just bigger government. And as you have bigger government, obviously, big business and big special interest comes knocking on the door, and they form this sort of unholy triumvirate. Uh, and then, obviously, with COVID, that was the, the ultimate showing of what happens when this goes awry, and they seized that opportunity. It was the biggest transfer of wealth that we have seen in history. I mean, while 400,000-plus small businesses closed permanently by June of last year, millions more struggling to survive. You know, At this point, nobody can find somebody uh, to even work there. Last year, seven tech companies gained three point for trillion dollars in value. It was a record year for IPOs. It was a record year for the valuation of these SPAC or special uh, purpose acquisition companies. So if you were big, you had unlimited access to capital and all of the support. But if you were not, then, you know, you were basically cannon fodder. Absolutely. And I have to uh, I have to guess with the Biden administration in charge, you are not particularly optimistic that anything is going to change for the better anytime soon. No, it's actually really scary. I mean, the, the types of policies that they are putting in place um, aren't, you know, just a, a tax increase or something that can maybe be undone uh, in a future administration or a future Congress. But some of the things that they're suggesting, things like the PRO Act or a national raise of the minimum wage. You know, these are things that are meant to be an attack on small business, on economic freedom, on gig workers. And what it does is it, it leads to um, sort of the, the test that they've been running with stimulus and all this extra money to say, oh, don't worry, you know, well, the government will take care of you and trying to move us towards universal basic income. And what does that do? That gives the government more power, but it gives the individual individual less economic freedom. I mean, I do not know any person who has gotten wealthy being on the government dole. Right, exactly. Um, all right, so is, is there anything out there that does give you hope that uh, are, are, we, are we seeing maybe some progress in, in red states? Are there some governors that are doing some things right? <laughs> I mean, uh, certainly they're trying, and, and it's it's really bad when you have to have government undo stupid government things. So right. uh, on this, these nine million jobs that Americans have left unfilled that nobody wants to fill, you have certain states that are opting out of these extended unemployment benefits. You have some that are actually offering bonuses for people to go back to work. And you know, while that sounds great. In theory, again, we don't want the government 
been involved at this level. We want the free markets to be able to sort it out. That's the most efficient and that's the most effective. But at this point, they have to do something to fight back against this insanity. So I think the last time I checked, it was probably close to two dozen states that had opted out um, of these extended uh, unemployment benefits. So there is the movement. Um, obviously, some of the states like Florida uh, had opened up the, their economies earlier than some of the others, which is a good thing, um, and are, are certainly seeing the, the economic rewards of that. But at the end of the day, you know, the state should have more power. But overall, the entire government system, whether it's federal, state, or local, should have less power, less money, fewer things that they are in charge of so that they can do those things that protect our rights well and they can stay out of the rest of our business. But obviously that doesn't serve their purpose and basic human nature of wanting power. Yeah, unfortunately. All right. Well, listen, the uh, the upcoming book is The War on Small Business. When's it coming out, Carol? So it drops 629. And if I can just plug, if you want to support a small business, you can certainly buy it anywhere because I'm a capitalist. But bookshop.org <laughs> will actually fulfill your book from a local independent small business retailer, which is super cool. So you can pre-order now and it'll ship to you on the 29th of June, a couple weeks. Uh, I love it. I love supporting uh, independent bookstores. So bookshop.org. Excellent. Carol Roth, thank you for your time. It's great talking with you. Hope we get a chance to do this again soon. All right, everyone. Have a great weekend. You too. Uh, Carol Roth, the, uh, the best hair uh, on television, unlike me, who has the best beard on radio. Uh, Carol J.S. Roth on uh, Twitter, by the way. And we're going to talk about those unemployment benefits because there are four states that are getting rid of those extended unemployment benefits this week. We'll tell you where they are and what states are on the chopping block next. Stick around. There's more of Tony Katz today. Coming up right after this. It's Tony Katz today. Welcome back to the program. 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards. Sitting in for Mr. Tony Katz this afternoon and glad to be behind the microphone. So we've been talking with Carol Roth about what's going on uh, with the economic imbalance uh, in this country. Both, again, the uh, the rising home prices, the, uh, the, the distorted job market. Uh, that we're seeing all around the country. Uh, and I think in large part that is due to the extra unemployment benefits approved by the federal government. Uh, as Carol mentioned, about 25 Republican governors have said, we're going to end these unemployment benefits early. And the first states to do so, uh, it's actually going to start this week, uh, June the 12th. So that would be tomorrow in Alaska, Iowa, Mississippi and Missouri, those states are going to opt out of the uh, extra $300 a week on top of that's coming from the federal government on top of the regular state unemployment benefits. Uh, the other states that are terminating benefits early uh, are, are all going to stop doing that at some point over the summer. Um, these are set to expire. These uh, additional funds, the additional $300 per week set to expire September the 6th. And uh, you will recall, uh, if you were listening yesterday, we talked about the fact that there's this uh, new report out. Axios uh, was the first to uh, break this story. Uh, a couple of firms are suggesting that as much as $400 billion worth of these federal unemployment benefits have actually gone to 
not just folks who who were ineligible to receive them, but have actually gone to criminal organizations uh, that they have obtained these unemployment benefits fraudulently. And one firm even estimated as much as 70 percent of these uh, additional federal unemployment benefits have ended up overseas in the hands of criminal enterprises in Russia and China in particular. So you've got states like Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Maryland, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming uh, that have said, okay, enough is enough. But Marty Walsh, the uh, labor secretary, former mayor of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, because, of course, being the mayor of Boston qualifies you to be the secretary of labor. Um, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh was asked about this this week. All right. So, you know, we, we've got these reports coming out. By the way, we've known that that fraud has existed uh, in the uh, stimulus funds that have gone out. This is separate. You may remember the stories last year about inmates in California prisons who were getting stimulus checks. This is an entirely different class of fraud. This is an entirely different program here where the fraud and abuse is taking place. And Marty Walsh was asked. So does this make you more inclined to support ending these additional benefits early? Not only the distortions in the job market, but uh, the fact that, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars appears to have gone into the hands of criminal organizations overseas as opposed to unemployed Americans. And his short answer was no. Doesn't make me any less likely to, uh, to, to say we should end these benefits early. Now, again, we've got basically... You know, June to July, July to August, and then early September. So we've got only about two months left for these uh, additional benefits. Anyway, I, I don't think that's enough time for Congress to step in and uh, and try to do anything about this. And I honestly, I don't even know that the votes would be there in Congress to uh, rescind these unemployment benefits early. But I, I do believe that it is causing a distortion in the job market. As a matter of fact, as I was uh, driving into the uh, beautiful town of Farmville, Virginia uh, earlier today, I drove by a local McDonald's and uh, their sign outside now hiring early morning shift workers, uh, 10 to $13 an hour. Now, about a year ago, when that same McDonald's was hiring, I believe they were starting folks out at nine dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Uh, and now again, they're they're up to at least thirteen dollars an hour. I have friends in town who own a restaurant and they've actually had to shut down one day a week because of their staffing problems. They don't have enough servers. They don't have enough cooks. And it's not just one restaurant. It's most of the restaurants in the town of Farmville are seeing that same labor crunch to the point that they are now having to close when they would prefer to be open because they can't find the workers. And as I mentioned this last segment, Farmville is a college town. There are plenty of eligible uh, residents here. And they've never really had this problem before. This isn't this isn't a cyclical thing like, oh, yeah, I remember this happened back in 2013 or 2015. They've never seen anything like this. So what has changed over the past year? Well, obviously, the pandemic caused a lot of businesses to close. But I think the government response, while it may have been needed at the time, is certainly having a uh, an, an effect on the labor market right now because it is easier it's not even easier it's 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 better for some folks bottom line to stay at home 
and not work as opposed to getting back on the job. And of course, the Democrats portray these uh, Republican governors as cold hearted and callous, and they don't care about these people who've been left out of a job. And they, they, they want to, you know, these individuals to to hurt. They want They want them to feel pain. That's not it. But what about, again, these small businesses that are in danger of closing and taking all of those jobs with them because of the distortions in the labor market that have been uh, uh, exacerbated by the federal government? If you really want to avoid pain, economic pain, the best way to do that is to get people back to work. But as Carol says, the federal government, and in many cases state governments, are incentivizing the exact opposite. Now, I'll be very curious to see what happens this fall uh, when these additional unemployment benefits do expire in the rest of the country. Do we start to see the labor market uh, get back to some semblance of normalcy, Uh, particularly, again, in the service economy? Or are, are these distortions going to remain in effect even after these extended benefits expire. It's uh, it, it's scary stuff. It really is. Uh, and I, I worry for the small business owners and their employees in this country because I, I think Carol is right. I think that um, we do have a, a war on small business right now. And I don't, unfortunately, see that changing anytime soon. Now, one thing that uh, we are seeing, however, one, one bit of a change down in the uh, state of Texas, Governor Greg Abbott says even though the Biden administration has halted construction on the border wall, he wants it to continue. And as a matter of fact, he has appropriated, uh, along with lawmakers in Texas, a billion dollars in the state budget to build the wall on the border between Texas and Mexico. We're going to get into that after a quick break. So stick around. We've got much more. Tony Cast today coming up right after this. Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. Uh, my name is Cam Edwards. In for Tony Katz this afternoon. Glad to be behind the microphone and uh, looking forward to talking with you. We've got actually a lot to talk about over the uh, next hour or so. Uh, coming up in hour three of today's program, we're going to get into the uh, ageless debate. What gun is best for uh, home defense? Uh, particularly, uh, what about the utility of the AR-15? We started off the uh, program talking about California's ban on so-called so weapons. Well, what about those uh, 44 states where these firearms are legal to own? Are, are, are they a good self-defense option? And, and then we're going to get into uh, some culture war issues here. The uh, coming backlash against woke public schools. Do you remember uh, uh, not long ago when Dr. Seuss was canceled, or at least a couple of uh, books from Dr. Seuss were canceled? And we were told, listen, don't freak out conservatives. It's no big deal. We're just talking about a couple of old books. They're outdated, and, and you don't have anything to worry about. Well, I'm looking at a, uh, a, a website here, Book and Film Globe, uh, and the headline, Literary World Reacts to Publishers Striking Questionable Lines. These are two books that are fairly recent. Like, one came out, I believe, in 2019. 
the other came out, I believe, in 2015. And these are these are basically like beach reads. Uh, Ellen Hildebrand is one of the authors. Casey McQuiston is uh, another author. Uh, and lines from their fictional books have, have been removed now after complaints by the woke scolds that uh, these lines were offensive to their sensibilities. So the uh, the censoring of the American mind continues. We'll talk about that uh, next hour. Uh, but let's talk about what's going on at the border. I mentioned before the break, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announcing on Thursday that the state of Texas plans on building a wall between the U.S.-Mexico border. NBC News says it's unclear whether Abbott has the authority to build that wall. While some of the land is owned by the federal and state government, much is also private property, which was an obstacle that the Trump administration faced in its efforts to construct a wall. Uh, Abbott did acknowledge during a, uh, a border security conference in Del Rio, Texas yesterday that it is the federal government's job to secure the border. But since the federal government is failing to do so, he says, quote, Texas will not sit idly by as this crisis grows. He says the state is working collaboratively with communities impacted by the crisis to arrest and detain individuals coming into Texas illegally, adding that our efforts will only be effective if we work together to secure the border, make criminal arrests, protect landowners, rid our communities of dangerous drugs and provide Texans with the support that they need and deserve. So the legislature has appropriated a billion dollars in the Texas state budget to help construct a border wall. But Governor Abbott says that there are some additional steps that the state is taking as well, including um, those who enter Texas illegally, he says, will face arrest and confinement for trespassing. And he said that he's created a task force to help formulate ideas on how to stop undocumented immigrants and illegal contraband from entering this country. Uh, one thing you didn't hear Governor Abbott say uh, is that he had requested the help of Kamala Harris because I don't think he has and I don't think that he will. You know, Kamala Harris, once again, under uh, fire and, 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 and rightfully so for her refusal at this point. I, I don't think you can call it anything but a refusal to go and visit the U.S.-Mexico border. She has gone down to uh, Guatemala. She has gone to uh, Central America. And she said, you know, look, we, we've got to deal with the, the root causes of why people from these nations want to come to the United States. And I, listen, I actually I don't disagree with that. I'm not sure that the best answer is to simply throw money at these countries, which is what the Biden administration seems to want to do. But I, I, I agree. You know, if you're looking at why this is happening, you can't just stop at the border between the United States and Mexico. On the other hand, you can't ignore the border between the United States and Mexico. And that is what Kamala Harris has largely done. She was being interviewed by Univision and the Univision anchor uh, asked her, this was uh, Elia Calderon. And she said, okay, so when are you, when are you going? And Kamala Harris tried to give a non-answer I'm going, she said. And so the anchor asked, OK, well, when? <laughs> Which is a reasonable question to ask. And instead, Kamala Harris snapped at the anchor, said, I'm not finished. And wagged her finger at her. Then did that little fake laugh, the <laughs> chuckle. And then she said, uh, I've said I'm going to the border. Well, 
When? When did you say you were going to the border? Uh, when, when Kamala Harris talked to Lester Holt earlier this week, she said she had already been. And then Lester Holt asked her, okay, when was that? And she said, well, I, I, I haven't gone to Europe either, <laughs> which was kind of a, a weird non sequitur. Nobody's asking her about going to Europe. And the last time I checked, we, we, even with Brexit, we, we don't have a, a huge issue of, uh, you know, people from European nations trying to enter this country illegally. If, if we did, I would say, Kamala, go, go to England, go to Europe, uh, you know, s- s- try to crack down on illegal immigration from Wales and from Ireland and from the United Kingdom. But that's not where we're seeing the flood of illegal immigrants right now. We're seeing it come from our southern border and the nations to our south. Uh, my friend Ed Morrissey over at Hot Air says uh, at some point one has to wonder what the White House is thinking with putting Kamala Harris in charge of the uh, declared non-crisis at the border. Uh, he, he says they shouldn't have handed this portfolio to a politician this incompetent in the first place. But the least that they could have done was to schedule a brief border visit in March, early April to avert this line of questioning. It's astounding, he writes, that Joe Biden and his team still fear the media coverage of a border visit or that a border visit would bring more than they fear the damage that Harris's bungling has produced, especially lately. Well, and I think the reason why they are still making that uh, assessment is because they know that they do have most of, at least they believe that they have most of the media on their side. I'm not sure that that is going to remain the case. Um, Lester Holt did press Kamala Harris, however briefly and however politely. Uh, The Univision anchor did press Kamala Harris, however briefly and however politely. And Harris couldn't even handle those uh, sort of milk toast criticisms. So, I, you know, if this continues and the number of undocumented immigrants continues to uh, grow, remember, we saw record high numbers last year or excuse me, last month. If those numbers get worse over the summer, Kamala Harris continues to refuse to visit the border I, you know, look, Lester Holt, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, they're, they're never going to be as tough on Kamala Harris as, let's say, a, a Fox News would be or a, a Newsmax. Uh, but it does become more difficult for these self-proclaimed journalists who are you know, supposed to be unbiased. They're supposed to be watchdogs. They're supposed to uh, uh, afflict the, uh, those in power and, uh, and make them uncomfortable with their questions. It really is going to be harder for them to continue giving the Biden administration a sponge bath with their questions. And they are going to become more pointed. And I, I don't know how the administration handles that. Again, this could have been resolved a couple of months ago. At least one of the talking points by Republicans could have been dealt with months ago if Harris had simply gone to the border. But now it's gotten to the point where <laughs> it's almost like she refuses to go simply despite those Republicans, even though it, it continues to provide them with a talking point and it continues to hurt the Biden administration, I think, with the American people. All right, that music means we've got to step away for a moment or two, but we will be back with Hour 3 of Tony Katz today. Going to talk about what is going on in our nation's schools. And we're going to talk about what gun is best for home self-defense. Stick around. Hour 3 of Tony Katz today is coming up right after this. 
Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It's Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards, sitting in for Mr. Katz. You can find me on Twitter, at Cam Edwards. You can also find me at BearingArms.com, where I am the editor there. We're covering Second Amendment news and information each and every day. I'm also the host of the Bearing Arms Cam and Company podcast. You can find that on YouTube and Rumble and Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the all the big uh, podcast platforms. And I'm glad to be behind the microphone for uh, one more hour before we get our weekend uh, off to a running start. We're going to be talking about uh, a couple of culture war issues here, including uh, woke schools and the growing pushback by parents around the country. Also, the uh, latest attempt at uh, not government-imposed censorship. I want to make it clear I'm not talking about government-imposed censorship. I'm talking about self-censoring. Because of the woke scolds out there, publishers deciding it is easier to change what is in uh, a book, in this case, uh, a couple of works of fiction, rather than argue with potential readers over the right of authors to to write and, and publish books as, as they see fit, even if it contains uh, uh, lines in there that might upset a reader or two. But I want to kick off the conversation this hour. Uh, Producer Ari and I were having this discussion uh, off air yesterday. Uh, Ari, do you want to do you want to set this up? Do you want to explain why we're, we're talking about AR-15s? Sure. So I, my wife and I are currently looking at firearms to buy for home defense. And so I said to Cam, we're looking at firearms, we're looking at all the options, we're totally wide open. And as I was looking at all the options, I was thinking like, man, like the AR-15 rifle, like the rifle style of the AR-15 seems so impractical. Like I can't imagine that ever being the best option for home defense. I'm okay with people having it, but like for for the primary home defense, I was like, man, this this seems like not a not a great option. <laughs> and I don't know if Ari was trying to provoke a, a great debate, but see, I, I'm very ecumenical when it comes to gun ownership. I, I believe the right gun uh, for you is the one that you decide. And so, you know, every time somebody asks me, like, hey, I'm going to buy a gun, what kind of gun should I buy? I don't ever know what to tell them. I mean, I can tell them what, what I like to carry and what I use for a home defense firearm, but ultimately it involves, I think, going to a gun store, fondling the hardware. If you can get to a range and maybe rent a gun, Try it out. I mean, I think that's the best thing to do. So I'm not going to argue that the AR-15 is the best home defense firearm. Uh, But there are situations where I think the AR-15 is is certainly appropriate. Uh, And and I would argue both from a a practical standpoint, uh, these are, you know, firearms that are uh, very accurate. Uh, They are uh, modular. Uh, So you can, you know, Ari, if you and your wife are are both going to use this rifle, like my wife and I, she's right-handed, I'm left-handed. I have an ambidextrous AR-15 that that we can both use for uh, for home self-defense. But, 
you know, we, we started off our, uh, our our show today talking with uh, Adam Kraut from the Farmers Policy Coalition about this uh, case out of California banning uh, so-called assaultments and a judge that overturned that ban. In that decision, the judge actually lays out several self-defense scenarios. He talks about uh, one case in which an AR-15 was used in Florida by a pregnant wife and mother to defend her family from two armed, hooded, and masked home intruders. Uh, as soon as the armed invaders entered the back door of her home, they pistol-whipped her husband, fracturing his eye socket and sinus cavity. They then grabbed the 11-year-old daughter. Uh, before they could do any more harm, the pregnant wife retrieved the family AR-15 from a bedroom and fired, killing one of the attackers while the other fled. So there's a situation where maybe these home invaders, if, if, if this woman had had a handgun, maybe they wouldn't have even seen that handgun. Uh, but the fact that she had a, a rifle, uh, you know, she was able to defend herself. Now, could she have used a shotgun? Could she have used a handgun? Yeah. Sure, she could have, but uh, the Air 15 certainly useful in self-defense in that situation. Sure, I mean, like, good for her. I'm not, I'm not discrediting the Air 15. Like, again, like it's a fine weapon, and people can own it all they want. I, <laughs> I was just like, in that example, is a great example. I was just saying, like, if I had to choose one that was best for like my home, I feel like right. that would not be the best choice. All right. Okay, and, I, and I'm not going to talk you out of it. I'll give you another example, though, because I find this one to be uh, pretty compelling, too. Uh, when seven armed and masked intruders went to a home in Florida at 4 a.m., burst through the front door and fired a gun, the occupants of the home, one armed with an AR-15, fired over 30 rounds and stopped the attackers. I mean, can you imagine, Ari? Like, we think of, you know, burglars and, and armed intruders, maybe, like, maybe two Right, working in you know, like in a team. But can you imagine seven no and home invaders that, targeting a house? That may be my problem. Is that the scenario? I the scenario I have in my head is one guy. I cannot fathom seven coming in to to you know with the intention of killing me because I haven't made that many enemies. <laughs> well, you know, unfortunately, and listen. I hope that you don't make uh, that many enemies, and I and I hope that even your enemies will stay away. Uh, but you know, the 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 fact remains that we don't know. We are preparing for the unexpected when we purchase a firearm, right, for self-defense. We don't know. Hopefully, we never have to use it, whether we're buying a, a pistol or a rifle or a shotgun. The, the expectation and the hope is that we never have to use that gun for self-defense. But we also, you know, we, we can't pick and choose what those self-defense situations are going to look like. Is it going to be one random person breaking into your home in the middle of the night? Or is it going to be a, a gang that's been, you know, casing your home for a week or two and saying, boy, you know, it looks like they got some pretty nice stuff in there. Uh, if we get a bunch of guys together, we could, uh, you know, get in and out of there pretty quickly and we could overpower those folks inside. Unfortunately, both of those situations and both of those scenarios uh, exist in this country. So I I'm glad to know that uh, that you're not opposed to uh, to people owning AR-15s, uh, have you have you decided on on what your home defense firearm is going to be? It's either going to be a handgun or a shotgun, but I just I don't I can't tell you specifically which. It just seems like the best. My scenario is that I'm going to be firing this gun within 20 feet of the person who is, you know, doing some bad things. Mm -hmm. So either the shotgun, it's going to be pretty hard for me to miss from that range, or the handgun is going to be pretty mobile for me. So one of those two. 
Okay. I think I think both of those are good. And like I said, my, my only suggestion would be if you can get out to a range. It's kind of hard to, to uh, rent shotguns at, uh, at some ranges, but uh, you can you can usually fire slugs, uh, if not uh, a shot itself. But get to the range if you can and try to rent a couple of firearms. See what you know, what, what do you feel comfortable with? And, and uh, your wife as well. I think that would be probably the, the, the one bit of advice that I would give. No, you. that's great advice because I want to make sure that it's something that I'm comfortable with. It feels good in my hand that I'm I don't want to have to think about it if I ever need it. So that is great advice. Absolutely. And then once you purchase it, get back to the range, make sure that you're training on a regular basis. So you do get that muscle memory and you do feel comfortable and you're not, uh, you know, fumbling around if God forbid you ever have to use one. All right. We're going to take a, a quick break. But when we return, let's talk about what is going on in the world of wokeness here. You've got uh, critical race theory being uh, uh, imposed on uh, some school districts around the country. And then you've got this this self-censorship taking place in the publishing industry. Over what I have to say, I think are some um, pretty uncontroversial passages in a couple of works of fiction. We'll get into that after a quick timeout. Stick around. There's more Tony Katz today coming up next. Today, eight got Tony is the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com. Sitting in for Mr. Tony Katz this afternoon. Glad to be with you and glad that you're with us. I ran across this piece at uh, National Review uh, a couple of days ago by Michael Ferris. He is with the group Alliance Defending Freedom. And they represent a uh, an elementary school teacher in Loudoun County, Virginia, named Tanner Cross. You may have heard about Tanner's case. He uh, spoke up at one school board meeting recently. He spoke for 60 seconds in opposition to a proposed uh, policy on uh, uh, teachers uh, using the preferred uh, pronouns of students. And he spoke out in opposition to this proposed policy. And he was suspended for doing so. The school district told Tanner Cross, you cannot return to your job. You cannot set foot on campus because you disagree with what we want to do. Not what we have done yet, but what we want to do. So Tanner sued. Uh, and Tanner actually won a victory earlier this week. When a judge said that, uh, no, he needs to go back in the classroom. You, you, you can't do that. Michael Ferris writes at National Review, however, that he was astounded when in the midst of this hearing, seeking the temporary injunction to reinstate him, that injunction again, which was granted, the school district's attorney volunteered the fact that Tanner Cross was the eighth employee in the past two years who has been suspended for out-of-school speech in Loudoun County. The eighth employee suspended over the last two years for saying something outside of school that the school district disagrees with. As Ferris writes, apparently consistently violating the First Amendment rights of its employees makes everything all right in the minds of this school district. Now, Loudoun County, Virginia, for those of you who don't know, this is sort of a D.C. excerpt. It's about 40 miles or so from Washington, D.C. 
but it is still a uh, I want to say a bedroom community, but still, you know, a lot of the residents there live and work uh, in D.C. or at least in the uh, the, the inner suburbs of uh, northern Virginia. When I moved to the state of Virginia in 2004, Loudoun County was a reliably Republican county. Fairfax County, which is a little bit closer in, that was turning purple. Uh, when I moved to Northern Virginia. Since 2004, however, the size of the federal government has obviously grown. The D.C. megalopolis has expanded as a result. And now Fairfax County is deep blue and Loudoun County uh, is a, 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 a deep shade of blue as well. But despite the fact that Democrats now dominate the school board and the board of supervisors, as Michael Ferris writes, the, there is a revolt going on in Loudoun County uh, among parents, and they're not all conservatives. He says the great bulk of the middle of the road families who simply want their children to get a quality academic education are now energized and engaged in a way that we haven't seen before. You, you, you may have run across uh, this video. It's gone viral this week. There's an older woman speaking at a at the most recent Loudoun County School Board meeting. And this is a woman who grew up in China and she's talking about the Cultural Revolution, Mao's Cultural Revolution and how she and her family fled China to get away from this type of authoritarianism that now the Loudoun County Schools wants to put back in place. They have this uh, a program in Loudoun County. Obviously, they, they, they do want to try to teach this critical race theory. They want kids to learn that the uh, United States has always been a horrible place, that uh, it is irredeemable. Uh, the, the racism in this country has never gotten better. But beyond that, I mean, that's bad enough. But beyond that, the school district has put in place this. It's called allies in ambassadorship, I believe is what the, uh, the, the, the phrase is. And it's basically elementary school Stasi. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the 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 East German uh, secret police who enlisted about one seventh of the population of East Germany to spy on their neighbors. That's what the Loudoun County schools want kids to do. So if you are an ambassador as part of this program, one of your responsibilities is to listen to what your fellow students are saying. And if you hear anything inappropriate, if you hear something that could even be considered a a microaggression, you're supposed to inform the adults. You're supposed to inform your teacher. You're supposed to inform the principal. Hey, uh, little Billy said something that uh, could be considered controversial here. Yeah, we got to do something about little Billy. As Michael Ferris says, parents don't want this. Co coerced uniformity of opinion, he says, is the tactic of tyrants. In international law, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and related treaties all proclaim that parents have a right to insist that children receive an education that is consistent with the values of their parents. And the enforcement treaties make it clear that this right cannot be overcome, even in situations where the existence of the nation itself is at stake. Ferris says even before you had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which came about as a result of World War II, before World War II, the United States Supreme Court issued a rebuke of efforts to homogenize children through the public schools, saying, quote, as governmental pressure towards unity becomes greater, so strife becomes more bitter as to whose unity it shall be. 
Probably no deeper division of our people could proceed from any provocation than from finding it necessary to choose what doctrine and whose program public educational officials shall compel youth to unite and embracing. In other words, you want to deeply divide this nation? Okay. Compel children to unite and embrace one particular doctrine or one particular ideology. And that is exactly what the Loudoun County schools and sadly, a lot of other school districts are doing. Now, I bring this up because Loudoun County is not Berkeley, California. It's not Portland, Oregon. These things are happening there, too. But this is a large suburban school district, about 88,000 kids in Loudoun County. And it's if it's happening there, it's happening almost everywhere. In fact, as I mentioned, I live in rural Virginia. So the county next to me uh, has already started dealing with this. The county that I live in, I've, I've been watching very closely. We haven't had any sort of attempts to introduce critical race theory in our schools. But the county next to where I live has. And they, too, recently had a packed school board meeting where dozens of parents showed up to express their opposition to this uh, plan to uh, impose these new standards uh, and curriculum on the, uh, the the students there in attendance. And I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that there was this reaction. I was a little, I was surprised, but uh, again, in a good way. Although, you know, th- and then I started thinking about it. And Virginia, going back to late 2019, we had the Second Amendment sanctuary movement in this state. Uh, just take off like a wildfire when Democrats won the elections in 2019 and they took over the, uh, the state legislature in Virginia. One of the immediate responses was at the county level. And we now have 95 of the state's 105 counties that have declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. That happened over about a four or five month period in late 2019 and in early 2020. And so I think that might have been sort of the canary in the coal mine for Virginians to get active and to get engaged at the local level. Because I saw things during that Second Amendment Sanctuary movement that I've, I've never seen anywhere. I mean, I saw a thousand or more people show up in a rural county with a population of about 14,000 people. A thousand of them showed up at their county supervisors meeting saying, hey, listen, we are terrified. We are we are upset about uh, what is coming down the road here from our state government. We want you to take a stand. You work for us. We want you to get involved, demanding that their supervisors step up. And in some cases, these supervisors were very reluctant to do so. They, well, you know, we don't really get involved in the partisan politics. But their hand was sort of forced by their residents. And I, I think because we saw the success of that Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement in Virginia, we're now replicating that when it comes to not our county supervisors, but now our local school boards. And I hope that with the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement having taken off all around the country over the past couple of years, that we will see this too take off and that more parents around the nation will start showing up at their kids school board meetings they'll start speaking out against these attempts to indoctrinate our kids we're starting to see it in virginia let's hope it spreads like wildfire again all right stick around we've got more of tony Katz today coming up we just got to step away for just a moment or two but i promise we'll be right back 
Tony Katz today is the program. Cam Edwards, that would be me. I am sitting in for Mr. Tony Katz today. And uh, the phone number to call, 833-GOT-TONY. We're talking about what's going on with the uh, the woke schools around the country and the pushback from parents. And by the way, you know, this, has, this began in higher education, and it has uh, trickled down now into K-12 schools. It's gotten worse at the collegiate level. In fact, it's gotten so bad at the collegiate level that we, we've now, I think, come full circle. And now it's the left who's saying, well, we, we shouldn't teach uh, some parts of history because it's, it's painful and it imposes too much trauma on uh, our students. This was actually um, what a law professor at the University of Buffalo said about, the, uh, about teaching Plessy versus Ferguson and the Dred Scott cases to his law students. Matthew Stylin uh, is this law professor. And he said that um, while he uh, would like his students to, to know about these cases, he said, quote, George Floyd has changed everything. I wasn't sure that I could muster the moral authority to stand up there and teach this case. Dred Scott is one of the worst decisions that was ever handed down by the Supreme Court. This was where the the case where Judge uh, Roger Taney declared that blacks were not citizens. In fact, blacks were not people, that they would always be property. And he also said, by the way, that one of the the, the disastrous outcomes of recognizing uh, blacks as people would be that they would have the right to keep and bear arms. And we can't have that now. Now, I think it's worth teaching, particularly, by the way, and you would think that those supporters of critical race theory who view this country as an irredeemably racist place, they would want to spend like an entire semester on Dred Scott. But he says, that's not not what's happening. Instead, he uh, edited the Dred Scott decision down to two paragraphs. And he said, uh, quote, Taney is making the case that black people who were enslaved were never part of the people of the United States and can never be citizens. It's just painful. He said, I'm white and I'm going to stand up there and talk with the students, including black students, about this stuff. I would be dragging them through stuff that was hurtful to them. It just felt indefensible. Well, it's it's history. And it's not like you're proclaiming that Justice Taney was right, that, that this was a some sort of noble decision. Again, you're talking about one of the worst pieces of Supreme Court jurisprudence in almost 250 years. I would say, by the way, that uh, Dred Scott, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Korematsu case, which uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, gave the green light to the uh, forced internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, there are a couple of other cases as well that you know were probably rounded by top five like worst decisions. But Dred Scott would be there, and again, he doesn't want to teach this. He says uh, not only is he skipping Plessy versus Ferguson, which held that segregation did not imply black people's inferiority uh, and actually allowed for the establishment of the uh, Jim Crow laws. uh, He only mentioned Plessy versus Ferguson while discussing Brown versus Board of Education, which was the case that ultimately overruled. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Josh Blackman, who's a law professor himself, writes in reason that uh, Stylin's decision was, quote, inevitable. He says, if law schools start from the uh, in vogue premise that students should be shielded from material that may be traumatizing or hurtful or painful, then this makes imminent sense. He says, I vigorously disagree with the premise, though. Educators cannot skip foundational material to avoid uh, to avoid imparting pain or trauma. And he's absolutely right about that. But this is 
a, 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 a real phenomena on the left. If you find something painful or difficult, then, then that becomes traumatic. And we need to do everything we can to avoid inflicting trauma on our fellow Americans. And this is now spreading outward beyond academia. Uh, again, remember a few months ago when Dr. Seuss was canceled, or at least a couple of his older books were canceled because of uh, racist tropes contained within Dr. Seuss's uh, material. And, you know, conservatives jumped on this and look, they're canceling Dr. Seuss. And they'll have, no, we're not. We're just, we're, we're just canceling a couple of his books. We're just saying that they're not going to be in printing more. This isn't censorship. Well, it is censorship. It's not government imposed censorship. It's self-censoring. And it's not, it, look, it, it, it may be uh, legally defensible, but I, I think it is still morally indefensible to self-censor merely because you want to avoid the woke scolds going after you. So this is happening right now in the publishing industry. Uh, Ellen Hildebrand and Casey McQuiston are a couple of authors they they, they write like beach reads basically um as one critic called them uh, light fun and carefree enough to set the tone for a nice day at the beach so this isn't serious literature this is like escapism fiction but last week someone on instagram <laughs> called out a line in hildebrand's recent novel golden girls which I don't believe, by the way, is about B. Arthur and Betty White. I, I, I might read it if it was. Uh, in the book, uh, th this line apparently uh, was called out for being anti-Semitic. In the book, a character named Vivi plans to hide out in her friend's parents' attic without their permission all summer. And the, the, the offending line reads, uh, well, I hope I don't get in trouble with the FCC for saying this, you're suggesting I hide here all summer, Vivi asks, like, like Anne Frank. And then Vivi and the girl she's talking to have a chuckle. That's being called anti-Semitic. Cancel the book. <laughs> Ari has weighed in. Uh, cancel the book. Just, just pull it completely. Do we need to burn it, Ari? Well, as the official Jew of Tony Katz today, uh, <laughs> yes, I am. I am so deeply offended. I, I don't know if I can. I honestly don't know if I can work anymore. I mean, this is crazy. Publishers Weekly uh, quoted one Instagram user saying, as a Jewish woman, one who lost 18 members of her family in the Holocaust, I'm disgusted in you as a publisher that you allowed that line to be published. It's inexcusable. Uh, someone else said, I know as a reader that the Anne Frank joke doesn't always mean the author would use it in real life, but seeing that stuff in general helps normalize it. It clearly wasn't important to the story if it could easily be removed. Well, maybe it wasn't all that important to the story. But it's is it really is it really anti-Semitic? Is it really worth working yourself up in a lather over? Because in a fiction book, some 12 year olds joking with their friends about hanging out in the attic all summer and compares herself to Anne Frank. Well, the author, Ellen Hildebrand, has apologized and she has asked her publisher to remove the offending line from the ebook as well as from future print editions. There's another example of this taking place uh, in the world of fiction. Again, a, a, another complaint about uh, 
perhaps an anti-Semitic comment or maybe just a, a, a comment that was not pro-Palestinian enough. We'll, uh, I, I tell you what, we're going we're gonna to hang on to that one. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll tell you about the, uh, the other book that is uh, soon to be on the bonfire because of one single throwaway line in a work of fiction. Stick around. More of Tony Katz today is coming up next.